0: Hey there, welcome to the show. A quick note, on the opening of our previous episode, that was number 193, that was my tweet that was read aloud by our local sports radio host here in Jacksonville. And yes, the producer of the show did say, I had a thought, Austin. How about you go to hell? Well, you know what? Being a Jax fan feels like being in hell sometimes. Just like running your own business. You keep getting beat down with loss after loss after loss after loss after loss. loss. Well, you get the idea. But you just got to keep persevering. Even if there are times you feel like giving up. Just like my boy, John. right, thank you Bucky on that. Let's go to John and Callahan next up here on the School War Show. John, you're on with Bucky Brooks. Go ahead. Hey, how are you doing, Bucky?
1: Uh, I just have one thing to say. Now I've got to go every weekend because my wife knows that Jaguars are going to lose. i got to go to some antique shop or something. Have a nice day. <laughs> Buy something <laughs> good while you're there. <laughs> We were just about to turn a corner and we're about to open in Chicago. And unfortunately our Chicago store did get looted, which is a very, very challenging time. We were about to open on Monday and that Saturday is when all that looting happened. When you're managing people in a normal world, that's not as effective if you want to keep people coming in the next day. Exactly, so I'll give one other hard piece of advice. So this has been critical throughout my career, which is. And so, you know, I go back to my father's house and I won't forget He sat me down and had a very different conversation than he did when I was 16. He said, Sonny, I've been doing this business for 40 years and I've had good years and I've had bad years. I've had ups and downs, but no one ever told me I had to go home and I couldn't come back the next day. My name is Sunny Bellani, and I am the owner and CEO of Bellani Custom Clothiers based out of Chicago, where I live, downtown Chicago. Married two kids, and I've been running this business now for 17 years. And so it's obviously had its challenges, its opportunities, and its fair share of up and downs. But been learning the whole way, which has been a great ride. No regrets at all.
0: And how old are you?
1: I am 46.
0: <laughs> Being in downtown Chicago, it seems like it's in the news a decent amount.
1: It is, and unfortunately not for the best of circumstances. You know, we've certainly had our challenges as a city over the years, but it's always been a great place to live in the area that I'm at and a lot of different areas. And obviously it's been economically challenged, challenged in different areas as well. And so now it's kind of been coming to a head over the last few months and also with COVID and everything else, it has been a more challenging place to live. I've always loved the vibrancy of downtown Chicago or any downtown. So big chunk of that has been eroded here.
0: And so how big is your company and like how many employees do you have and whatnot?
1: That's kind of a fluid question right now because of COVID and looting and things like that. I'll say this, which is we ended 2019 just over 10 million in sales and we were around there for the last couple of years. Now we've been, I think we'll be lucky if we're in the five to $6 million range at the end of this year. And so it's been a super challenging year. We were completely closed in April and May. And, we know, we did our best to stay engaged with clients, but we were basically down about 90% in those two months, you know, unable to be open, et cetera, which was obviously understandable with COVID and everything, but as a business owner, very frustrating as well.
0: And so you said Belani Custom Clothers, is this like a fancy kind of suit place or like, what is it if people don't know what your company is, at least understand that portion of it?
1: We are a custom clothing company. So we make men's custom suits, sport coats, slacks, the whole gamut of men's tailored wear, tuxedos, overcoats, et cetera. So anything tailored wear is our specialty. I'll talk about this later, but we're now carrying casual wear for some obvious reasons in the market dynamic changes, but we've traditionally just focused on that men's tailored wear. And so it's been our sweet spot and I've been building it over the years to try and build more of a national
0: brand. How many locations and like employees did you have last year and then compared to this year? Because we've obviously heard there's a big downfall, unfortunately, so far.
1: We had just under 50 employees and we had 12 locations around the country as of last year. I've always run the business really lean, which obviously going into COVID and these ch- current challenges was a benefit. So locations, people, I've always run it really lean and we've tried to solve problems as much as we can with brains rather than money and a lot of people and a lot of management structure. So we've been pretty successful at that, which is thankfully good at this time.
0: Have you had to cut back those employees and locations at all right now or no?
1: So I did close our heartbreaking for me, but definitely the right decision, which is we had this beautiful location right on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood in LA. And so that was a kind of a beautiful spot that was near and dear to my heart. But at the end of the day, it was always roughly break even up or down. And going into COVID, we got lucky and closed it really early on. I shouldn't say we got lucky. My team actually pushed me real hard to push that location and to close it. And so I think I was the only one that was still pushing to try and make it work. This was probably like April. Everyone on my leadership team was like, no, we got to let this go. And so I was like, you know what? I put my ego aside and we're going to close this. And thank God we did because you know it was a fairly expensive rent. And we got out fairly scot-free. I had a great relationship with the landlord and he let me out fairly inexpensively for what it was. And it could have been a really large loss for us.
0: Your company seems like a higher end. And I noticed like, at least when I saw stuff about Chicago or even, I don't know if this was in Los Angeles too, in this area, were any of your stores like looted or anything like that?
1: Yeah. So I think we've had a few things come our way, which have been different challenges. And obviously we started with COVID and then being shut down for some time. And I was trying my best to renegotiate leases. I we touched on this, but I did let go of some admins around the country and I felt like we were just about to turn a corner and we we're about to open in Chicago. And unfortunately our Chicago store did get looted, which was a very, very challenging time. We were about to open on Monday And that Saturday is when all that looting happened. And I remember my wife was out. She's a real estate agent and she was trying to get home to our place. And she was unfortunately stuck in the middle of all the looting as it was coming together. So no one knew it was really happening. It was about 7 p.m. And it was literally the heart of River North where all the fancy restaurants are, all the steakhouses and the trendy spots are. And she's trying to drive through there and they are smashing in windows and flipping over garbage cans and setting them on fire. And she was by herself in her car and she was scared beyond belief. And so she finally got a hold of me. I was talking to her and, you know, there was an area called Lower Wacker in Chicago where you can go underground, but once you're under there, you're kind of on your own. And so she was like, this is the only way I can get out of here. She went through that way and I was trying to meet her down there and I was like, man, I don't even know what we're going to do if something happens down there. Thankfully she made it home and I've never seen her so shaken in my whole life. So of course we flip on the TV and we're watching and I see that they lifted all the bridges in Chicago because they couldn't contain things and get things under control. So they wanted to just do their best to isolate the area. And so I was in the middle of that area. And so I saw the Macy's sure enough, get looted. We're all watching this real time on TV. And then they start to hit Jewelers Row and I'm just a block from there. And so sure enough, I get a phone call about half an hour later from our security that says that there's people inside your store right now and there's nothing we can do. It's overrun, which was a very surreal feeling just to feel that helpless and know that people are in your store and there's nothing you can really do about
0: it. All right. that's got to be the worst, especially like in the US, you want to think maybe a second or third world country. If to me, I could see something like that, but I would never, in my Wildest dreams think of like, oh, I opened a nice fancy suit store and people are going to come in there and start stealing stuff.
1: So I couldn't agree with you more. And to illustrate that visual, I can tell you that I was one of the first people in on Sunday morning around 6.30, a.m. I met my manager down there. As you said, it, you know, you never imagined it happening in this country. It felt like a third world country as I was walking through the loop. Everything was destroyed. There was glass everywhere. I was walking by the Walgreens, which is around the corner from us. And it was like a bomb went off. It looked like in the middle of a war zone, the sprinklers were going off and they had set it on fire after they destroyed it to, I guess, try and erase the evidence or whatnot. And so... As I'm walking by, I'm seeing like our shoes and our clothing sprawled across the street because it was just a disaster. And so it was a pretty surreal environment. But I will say the positive that I took away from that day was immediately, you know, we walked to my store candidly, making sure first and foremost that no one was still in there. It was a little scary and sketchy to walk even in there because, you know, there's no lights on, et cetera. As we walk through there, start to get assessed the situation, call my insurance guy, start to do all these things. Then you know, it was a really cool experience was that one by one, every single member of my team started to come into the store without my prompting to just, you know, they saw it in the news or, you know, my manager told them and they just all came in and start to help clean up. And I just felt like during that moment, it spoke to the power of small business and how these guys all came in on their own time on a Sunday in a pretty precarious situation. Some guys rode their bikes in because you couldn't get in the loop that helped clean up and just did whatever they could to get things back to whatever they could do that day. And I emotionally and mentally it just made me feel great to know that the team was still behind me. And as much as I love those brands like Starbucks and Walgreens and all these things, like there was no employees out there that were trying to help these brands get back together. But for the small businesses, I saw it all over the loop
0: and the craziest part is you felt like you had just survived kind of the mandatory closing of covid right and you're saying you're like finally you see some positivity like okay finally i can actually open my own store the government will let me and then this boom but then again you're still bringing out the positive but it's nice to be able to hear like some of us saw it on the news all across the country wherever and they're like it's all right they have insurance but when you actually hear somebody who has their own store, and just because they have insurance, that's still not okay, right? Your insurance is going to go up no matter what now, too, even if they reimburse you for everything. But then there's time as well, which is way more important as well, you know, like, so thank you for sharing that story. It's just I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that before we kind of reel it back to how you got started. But it just seems like the last, I'd say, six months, right? have been pretty wild for you.
1: It's been interesting, right? And actually it's exactly what you said, which is it's not the money, right? It's the time and the energy. And more than anything, I would say, especially this year, and this goes to entrepreneurship in general or to running a business in general, which is you're going to have all these ups and downs. It's pretty rare that you have this many kicks in the head in a year in a row. And so I'd say the biggest challenge going into that looting wasn't time, it wasn't money, it was momentum. Because literally, we were all super psyched to open that Monday and to get things going again. And then to have that momentum just absolutely pulled out from having that rug pulled out from you was pretty tough. And so I recognized that that day I had to focus on something positive because if I didn't and if I sulked and I basically said, this sucks, how do you think the team would react that night, that next week, that next day? They lean on me to set the precedent to how we're going to be moving forward. And I chose to decide to focus on the fact that everybody came together. And it was absolutely true. Everybody did come together and rally. I made sure I made a point of that to the team to make sure that no matter what happens, we're going to keep moving forward. And I was joking with them. I'm like, what's next, guys? Meteors are going to hit. We're going to keep doing this, whatever happens.
0: Before we go back to how you started the custom clothers, curious, and I'm sure everyone else is, because I want to leave this off on a positive note as far as this part of your story. Like, What's your plan going forward now?
1: Interestingly, I've been through a couple of recessions now, and we've had many challenges to the business. And I think this is also one of those scenarios where it's darkest before the dawn. And in fact, I have a very parallel story, which was back in after the 08 financial crisis, which didn't really hit us until 2010 is when I really felt it, where a lot of the retailers started to liquidate all their inventory because they were starting to really feel it. And then we were competing against that inventory and people were not dressing up as well. I think it just was the market dynamics. And obviously this is much different with COVID because I'd say in March, April, our main business challenge was how do we service our clients that want to buy clothing that we can't because our stores are forced to close. All of a sudden, that challenge has now shifted to everyone's working from home and people are currently not wearing any dress clothing and tailored menswear. And it could be some time before that happens. And so as I focused on that business challenge, I recall that back in 2009, 2010, we were having similar challenges. And what ended up happening was all the department stores ended up slashing their inventory of menswear, tailored wear, because it's really expensive for them to carry that fixed inventory in a day and day out. Now, because we're custom clothing, our biggest competitive advantage is really that we don't carry inventory. We make each piece as we take an order for it. And so we can literally have an unlimited supply of style, fabric selection of almost anything, and that it can be personalized and detailed to you, and of course, to your measurements. But that advantage of not having that inventory is really competitive advantage managed going into this situation. I mean, I'll share with you, last Sunday, I went to an outdoor mall with my wife and kids, and it's already starting to be true, which is if you go into even Nordstrom or any of the big retailers out there, their selection is super meager. They've pushed out their buys to next year. Their selection is Really, really lackluster at all the big department stores and all the retailers. And so my bet now is going to be as we start to open up the economy again next year and people start to dress, our particular segment will really boom at that point of time, which is exactly what happened post the last recession, except it will be that much larger of a rebound effect, in my opinion, in that. And people, as you notice, get tired of wearing sweats all the time. They love it at first, right? It's great because you don't have to dress up. But after a while, it's a drag to only put on the same thing and you want to go out to dress and look your best. And really what we're doing is we're about confidence and making people feel great in terms of a meeting, a date, an anniversary, a wedding, any type of occasion where getting dressed warrants. Said we've had such a lull on that that I think there's going to be a big rebound effect. And that's where we're going to really capitalize even more so because the department stores are not going to be able to have that selection and styling candidly. I mean, we have Brooks Brothers Men's Warehouse, not that they're our competitors, but they certainly take a little bits and pieces of market share away from us. All these guys and all the small independent retailers, unfortunately, are going to be going out of business. And so hopefully that will help us boom moving forward.
0: And going forward, too, I imagine just for the rest of your business career, this is probably going to be the hardest thing that you've gone through, to be honest. You know, with especially if a three month cycle, you know, you're saying if between COVID forcing closure and having your store looted, like you said, all that can happen next is a meteor shower next for you, right? And you're ready for that, it seems like.
1: Well, you know what? It's funny. I feel like every one of these situations, if you get past it, It's like that old analogy that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Every time you get past one of these scenarios, it does give you the confidence to say, all right, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I'm not going to take any pity. I'm going to figure out what opportunities are lying in front of us and how can we pivot and change. And of course, we have the casual where we're moving online, we're doing lots of things. It's been a little frustrating because it's one of those scenarios where executing at some of the highest levels we've ever executed on and we're not seeing the dollars come in or the revenue come in. So that, that's a challenge. But the way I have to look at it is we're executing these things at a super high level. It just is not coming in right now. But a year from now, we're going to be far better positioned than our competitors to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that are there.
0: It's all about survival now because there'll be less competition then, right? So then at that point, if there's less competition. You're going to be the person that succeeds because you were able to make it through it. So people are going to be looking for clothes, like you said.
1: I think it's more fun to be in a market that's growing, but Absolutely what you said is if you can be the one who's got the cash flow, the team and the operations and still maintain everything to that same level, when that market comes back, there will be a lot less competition and we should be able to thrive through that.
0: As you know, the way we work together seemingly changed big time this year. If there's one thing we've learned for adapting businesses, having access to the right resources is vital and it's essential to maintain a strong digital presence. 2020 has been the year of uncertainty. So how can your business plan for the unexpected operate virtually? Finding the right talent can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. It's difficult to keep up with current best practices for maximizing your digital presence. Fiverr's online marketplace connects businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. You know what? My favorite experience with Fiverr is the low, low, low prices for those awesome Fiverr projects. Fiverr's global network of on-demand freelance talent is here to help. Whether you're launching your first business or scaling your current business, in need of extra support to complete a project or trying to digitally optimize your business. A network of quality talent you can count on. This time is difficult for all of us. Freelancers have worked with some of the most influential brands in the world. Find freelancers that are ready when you are. Fiverr's platform is flexible enough to accommodate and manage the flow of business. Check out Fiverr.com and receive 10% off your first order by using my code MILLIONAIRE. Find all the digital services you need in one place at F-I-V-E-R-R.com. Code Millionaire, Again, that's fiverr.com code millionaire. Thanksgiving and Black Friday may look a little different this year, but there's still a lot to be thankful for. Like being able to find the right people for your team when the holiday rush has you ramping up your small business needs. So when you're ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so you can find the right person for your business fast. There's a ton of features I love about LinkedIn jobs, but my favorite is being able to target a candidate quickly in your geographic area. You know, LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 706 million members worldwide. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Post a job with targeted screening questions and they'll quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar LinkedIn.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay whatever you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So why don't we reel it back to when you graduated college? I see you went to Michigan State and graduated in 1997, and then we'll kind of take it to how you came Balani custom clothers over time.
1: Sure. So actually, I'm going to jump back a little bit earlier because Balani Custom was actually founded by my father, originally under the name Midos Custom Tailors. You know, when I was a kid, he would always ask me if I wanted to join the business or allude to it. And when I was 16, he kind of sat me down and said, do you have interest in into a business and really tried to pitch me on it. And I think what happened to me was I had watched Wall Street when I was far too young. And I really bit that I got that trading bug in me. And I really wanted to do that. And so like any 16 year old, I slammed him real hard on terms of no, I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to carve up my own path. And I have no interest in going to this business and keeping in mind. At this point, it was just my father. So he was doing trunk shows around the country and it was not a large entity. It was more of a sole proprietorship. And so sure enough, I set out to do that after I graduated college and I went to work at a number of different investment banks and trading firms. I ended up at William Blair in Chicago, which is a top-notch blue-blooded firm in Chicago, which I was very happy to be at. And ended up being getting becoming a senior trader on the desk, which was, in retrospect, I always joked I was the youngest trader on the desk by seven years, which was awesome. And the bad news was I was the youngest trader on the desk by seven years. And so now, I think with that came maybe some success too early. And so I was a little bit bored as it became a little bit repetitive to me. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm 25, 26, is this what my career is gonna be like for the rest of my life? And you know, maybe that success came a little early. And then of course, these problems have a way of solving themselves. And we had the recession of 2002 after 9-11. And so there was a lot of regulation and change into my industry. And sure enough, I ended up getting let go because I was the youngest trader on this desk by seven years. So I survived one round of layoffs, got let go on the second one. I was young and naive. I'll use the word naive instead of saying young and dumb, but I ended up getting a great severance package. And so a year before that, I was being recruited by Goldman Sachs and every top firm on Wall Street. And so I was thinking that I would be able to pick up the phone. It's my first recession. I'm thinking whenever I'm ready, I'm going to take some time off. And whenever I'm ready, I'll be able to pick up the phone and call whoever, all these headhunters and get a gig. And so rather than picking up the phone... I decided to plan a trip and I took my wife around the world who I just got married to a few months earlier. And we took a six week trip around the world, which I have zero regrets about. Sometimes it's great to be young and dumb and have the not knowing what's coming around the corner. And so this great experience with my wife takes six weeks off, which I well deserved at this age, which I definitely did not, but it was great. And then I came back. And of course, I pick up the phone and call those headhunters and all those firms that want to recruit me a year before. Like I said, my first recession, not knowing what I'm getting into. And of course, it's crickets. No one's returning my calls Period. Like, I'm not even getting calls back. And so, you know, I go back to my father's house and I won't forget, he sat me down and had a very different conversation than he did when I was 16. He said, Sonny, I've been doing this business for 40 years and I've had good years and I've had bad years. I've had ups and downs, but no one ever told me I had to go home and I couldn't come back the next day. And it was a pretty profound statement to say, you know what? There's this business, it's right in front of me. And if I want to give it a shot, I can. And he's right. At the end of the day, you can have ups and downs, you can have challenges, but you control your destiny and you can do with it what you want. It is challenging and it is hard, but it's been a journey I would not change the world now.
0: Like I guess and he was alluding to like basically the company that you were working with sent you home and you don't really have any control, right? And if you have your own business, even if you're making less money or whatever, like you have that control and eventually hopefully you build up revenue and we all eventually going to have to sell or the business dies. Like, you know, so you're still building equity into the business too. But I mean, I'm curious, like coming out, you said you were a trader. What were you trading? And like, how much money does like someone in that position end up making? Because it sounded like it was pretty lucrative. If you had all these people recruiting you and you're taking time off afterwards.
1: Yeah. So I was an equity market maker on the NASDAQ, which was a great time to be a trader. This was like the internet stock bubble and it was completely unprecedented. So it was a great time to be in that market, learn so much about that industry very, very quickly. I would say I was doing pretty well. I was making six figures at a very young age, but I never made the huge dollars that had I been there for another couple of years it would have really panned out for me, which good or bad, I think if I would have made it, perhaps I wouldn't have been as hungry moving forward as I was. I was still young and very, very driven when I got let go. And so I still had that internal drive and motivation to really do something great. So I think it was just enough. If I had to answer the question, I don't think I'm reflecting. I think it was just enough to keep me like where I experienced the finer things in life and start to see what that was like. And still not so much where I wasn't so driven.
0: And I guess before we talk about what you ended up doing after your dad had your sit down talk and maybe taking over the business, curious on that six week trip, where did you go and what are some of your favorite places? Because I always like hearing about that. You know, those are experiences that I'm sure all of us listening, like I keep preaching it's like you want money to have freedom, right? And the ability to go do something like that. So it's always cool to hear like some of the finer things in life, as you said, what you got to enjoy. So what were some of your favorite places there?
1: So I'm of Indian descent, so we spent three weeks in India and three weeks in Europe. And so it was absolutely remarkable. It's just be it was a great experience to be able to travel to these different places. Actually, now I think about it, we also went to Hong Kong. I spent some time in San Francisco. And it was amazing because I think usually when you're on these types of trips, you're trying to go on a beach and check out or you're trying to explore something and be done. But this was like six weeks is a pretty good amount of time where you could just really explore get to know people, connect with people and individuals in different parts of the world. And so I had highlights everywhere. The food was amazing in every part of the world that we went to, and you get to explore different cultures and see how different people live. And I think it really also does give you life perspective of how different the United States is versus other parts of the world. And you know, especially, I've been fortunate enough to travel around the world, and even more recently, I've traveled quite a bit. And as much as, I feel like we have issues in the United States and people are complaining about different things. When you go to different parts of the world, you really come back and you really appreciate what we do have and how we do have opportunity here. And there is infrastructure.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have even went to the Philippines right when I kind of kicked off the podcast and stayed on an island and they shut down the water twice. I mean, talk about like the whole island stopped with water. I mean, if you imagine that, I'm like. Go near the bathrooms when the waters are shut off, right? And so it's like, again, those little perspectives, These, when you get to travel, it does make you appreciate these things, like you were saying.
1: So it's funny you say that, you know, I do a gratefulness exercise with my team and with myself often. And one of the things as I've traveled around the world is running water. You could be grateful for your place. You could be grateful for your family. You can be grateful for opportunities to do things. But running water is something that is a luxury in most part of the world. And to put that in contrast, when I do my gratefulness exercise, I always think about walking into a 7-Eleven. My God, the assortment of different beverages we have at our fingertips I mean, like, how many different drinks do they have in a seven? How many people, how many different drinks do does anyone need? And most of the world doesn't have, you know, running water that they can drink and, and et cetera. I'm like, man, we have a lot to be grateful for with this choice of beverages we have in front of us, let alone all the other choices we have in our daily life.
0: Yeah. I think about it all the time, especially where I live. I live in Florida and humidity becomes an issue, too. It's just like, you without the invention of AC. It's water and then I think electricity. Like water is more important than electricity. You start realizing, like you said, when you go to an island and the water shut off, you're like, oh, okay, water is more important. <laughs> you're like, oh, electricity is, you know, like something I should be grateful for. And you don't even think about that. And then I'm like, my next thing I think about is AC because I sweat. And then dude, no one lived in the South before AC, you know? So it's just like, I'm glad that you have that perspective. And I find that most of my guests do, you know, that they find that gratitude within inside themselves or like being grateful for what they have is like, okay. I don't know if you do that every day of your gratitudes or I'm just curious on that portion of that life perspective before we start into I guess the beginning of this business here.
1: Sure. So I do have a app on my phone which is called the Five Minute Journal and it typically a great quote that is there that I reflect on. And then it gives me three things that I'm grateful for and a purpose for the day. Everybody has multiple purposes for the day, but you typically have one and it's one you typically want to avoid, but it makes you write it down because it's the hardest one. Typically of something to accomplish. So it's great for mindset. I cannot say I do it every single day, but I do it pretty frequently. And I definitely do it when I'm feeling down or I don't have that energy level to really move myself forward. And you know, reflecting on water, electricity, or my condo, the opportunities I have, the ability to travel, just keeping things in perspective of what you have versus what you don't have really gives you a clear mindset to be able to attack the day with a mindset. And Kindly, when you said... You're surprised at how many of the entrepreneurs that you have on your show have that mindset. I'm not surprised at all, actually, because I surround myself with lots of entrepreneur organizations. And anyone I know that's had that level of success has that mindset. And I think it's because this shit is hard, it's challenging. And unless you have that really strong mindset going into every single day, you're going to let it get down to you and you're going to let it eat you alive. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, the old and rich dudes used to always be miserable right? Because it wears on you. And if you let it get to you, it can certainly do that. So I think gratitude and mental exercises have become so much more mainstream.
0: Well, my wife fills out my five-minute journal every morning and it says, to make her happy. (laughs) That's my only goal every day.
1: How often do you do it?
0: (laughs) Uh, Not very often. Not often enough, she would say.
1: She's keeping you motivated.
0: Well, great. Well, like I said, I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, I think anyone who's listened has figured that out over time. I guess I was just surprised even in the beginning because, again, like you're saying, there's people who are rich as hell, who are billionaires, who are miserable, right? And it's like, you can be a millionaire and be happy. You can make a hundred thousand be happy. You can make fifty thousand be happy. It's just, again, just having that aspect of mindset because you need that because of all the ups and downs. And I mean, we've already talked about some of yours, obviously, you know, especially in the last six months, if you will, but. Why don't we jump back to when your dad had that talk with you and kind of where you went from being an equity trader and traveling the world for a six-week vacation, and then kind of jump back and tell us what year it is and how you got started in here.
1: Yeah. So I believe the year was 2003, and I honestly did not imagine staying in this business for this long. I thought I would help my dad just while I was killing time looking for that next opportunity, with whatever I could. And so I'm not one to sit around. I started helping him build a website, which amazingly enough for the custom clothing industry was really rare at that time. Not too many custom clothingers had websites. And so we were one of the first to start to do that. And I was like, oh, this is an easy win here. I worked with some friends I knew to build an online operations software system that could process orders much faster, capture customer database and So what I quickly realized was trading stocks was super fun, exciting, big numbers, et cetera. But at the same time, it was pretty repetitive on a day-to-day basis. And we were talking on our pre-interview about you being commercial real estate. It becomes right like once you kind of know it really, really well, it does become secondhand. And that learning component doesn't really continue. Now I can easily look back at what was missing from my trading life. And it was that learning component of continuing to be challenged by different things. The money was great. It was a prestigious job, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I wasn't learning the way I think I wanted to be. And then when you start to put on that entrepreneurial hat, I mean, this was a sole proprietorship I jumped into. So I was doing the marketing, I was doing the finance, I was doing sales, I was taking measurements, I was doing everything, which is also very humbling for me to be a Wall Street trader to taking people's measurements in a good way. I think I've basically done absolutely every role at the company. And then as I started to have my first hires, what I always tried to do from the beginning was to master a skill to the best of my ability and then hire somebody better at it and then hire somebody better at something else. And then Slowly, I was able to give up all those marketing, finance, sales. Obviously, many times over to be able to build a sales team and understand how to manage it, which was a whole other thing. Trying to manage people—I mean, when you're on a training floor, you basically are managing people by swearing at them and being loud and trying to get your way as best as possible. When you're managing people in a normal world, that's not as effective if you want to keep people coming in the next day. And so, learning how to manage people is certainly a challenge for me, as I'm sure it is for many entrepreneurs and. Really, I'd say my form of managing people is to try and teach and bring out the best in people. It's always amazing when you can bring out qualities in someone that they didn't know they had and have them excel at something that they didn't know they could. And so that's what I've always tried to do as a good manager.
0: So I'm trying to take it on a year-by-year year basis, so 2003 is when you start with your dad. Is he paying you?
1: He is as best as he can, and I was very cognizant of our financial situation, and so I took $60,000 a year for the next five years. Thankfully, I had purchased our condo, my wife and I's condo in River North, which is that fancy area actually she was driving through the night of the looting. We had kept it, we'd moved out. I was renting places after that. It served as a rental for us, but it's interesting. I didn't own another home then until I was 40. So many years later, because I reinvested every dollar I could back in the business, that was always my priority after that. Even after we had kids, I didn't own a home. I just wanted to keep putting those dollars back in the business. So I did take a huge pay cut for a number of years.
0: Yeah, because that's what I wanted to bring about is that perspective. I'm like, especially if he's not paying you, you're like, oh, that's hard. But even if he's paying you, I obviously, I think we're all thinking it's going to be a big step down if you said you're making a decent amount doing equity trading in the hundreds of thousands.
1: It was a big step
0: down. Yeah, I know. But after it happens, you're like, did I do the wrong thing? Obviously, you couldn't find a job at the time. But again, this is what's going to happen to other people who might leave a luxurious job, right? Who might be making six figures somewhere. So just be ready that this is likely going to happen. So did he have his own shop? Was it just one little shop and you and him for that first year?
1: So actually, he did not have a shop. He was doing trunk shows in hotel rooms. It's this older model of custom clothing. It's a very low overhead business where you see your clients in isolated scenarios or he's going to people's homes and offices. It was great. It was an okay business. I mean, I put food on our table and put me through college. And so it was a good business from that perspective. But I think from two perspectives, A, I didn't want to travel the way he traveled. I, I didn't love oh, no, never having my father around when I was a kid. And also, it wasn't the customer experience that I would have wanted. The benefit of being a Wall Street trader for a few years was I was my client. I knew what my client wanted because I lived that life for many years. I redesigned the business model from my perspective as a client rather than the business perspective. I think I still try and have that mentality. of what does my client want? Not what do I want? Because sometimes often in business, you're trying to think, well, I want my client to want this, that versus... What does my client actually want? And so for the beginning of that part, when I redesigned it, we designed our first store, which we opened in 2005. I designed this fabric bar. And the reason I did that was I was actually at a bar with my wife. And I was like, this is the way shopping should be. Like I want to be able to sit at a bar and have a conversation with someone and not sit at a desk, which was the old style of custom clothing. You're at a big leather desk and there's high back chairs and you've got fabrics all over the table. What I wanted to do is a very controlled environment where you have a conversation, really get to know clients. What does their work life look like, their social life, their aspects, where you can really design the work for them. And you take out a few fabrics at a time and make suggestions. And by the way, we serve wine, beer, scotch, all beverages to be able to make that a really personalized one-on-one fun experience because most guys don't love shopping. So my thought process was how do I make this really personal and fun and enjoyable where once we've got your measurements on file, all you got to do is come and have a drink with us and pick out your wardrobe. Like how fun is that?
0: Yeah. And the more they drink, the more they buy.
1: We try not to over <laughs> them.
0: <laughs> you don't give shots, three shots before you start buying?
1: Depends on what time of the day it is. There
0: you go. Yeah. Cause I don't want to keep like going back and forth because I feel like we start getting a bigger perspective. I want to focus in on this like 2005 then, cause it seems like maybe you're traveling with your dad. And again, even before this, was it hard working with your dad? Cause it didn't seem like you had been doing that obviously before. Did y'all have any issues before you even opened the retail store?
1: We had knockout, drag out fights where it was unbelievable. I actually remember being at a family party where my wife had to bring me back in because I had gotten so upset about a particular issue. My dad was pushing me on that I just walked out. And I mean, here's the challenge is our family dynamic used to just be that family dynamic, right? And then when you throw business in the mix, inevitably, at some point, we're going to talk about something that happened during the day or during the week or during the month or catch up on something. And we had very, very differing views on what the future would hold. And you know, to his credit, after a while, he started to let go of the vine and really trust my judgment in terms of where I wanted to take the business. But early on, he fought me tooth and nail. I mean, you know, for all he knew, I didn't know anything about the business. Why should you trust me with these decisions, et cetera? And actually, I remember one of the biggest fights we had was the name of the business at the time was Meadows Custom Tailors, which to me, sounded like nothing. Like it didn't sound like a brand. It didn't sound anything that, you know, it sounded almost like a shipping company or something, but it. it was custom tailors. I didn't get it. And I asked my dad several times, you know, where did you come up with a name? And every time I'd ask him, he'd give me a different story. And so I don't even know what the real story is. I'm pretty sure it was four guys sitting around a bar in the sixties that came up with the name. But so our last name is Balani. And I always thought that was great. Like great syllable structure, et cetera. It sounds like a high-end brand. I pushed him to change that and he fought me on a tooth and nail. He really wanted to keep that old name. And so I remember I polled 100 clients as we'd see them in front of him, literally 100. And one client said, and these were the words, I don't know, I'm kind of used to Mito. And he stuck <laughs> to that. Like it was like, the guy loved it. There's no way we could ever change this, et cetera. I'm like, dad. we have 99 clients that said they liked the idea, except one, he wouldn't let it go. And so for two years, I had to do a brand transition where it was Balani by Nitos, which was our compromise. And a few years later, I remember asking that client, do you remember saying this? Like, this was our challenge, et cetera. And he didn't even remember saying it. I was like, oh!
0: You wasted two years of my life.
1: The heartache you put me through, yes.
0: Yeah, that's surprising too, because I mean, I could see a dad not wanting to change the name, but especially to your last name, I thought that might be an easier transition. But I guess that was one of the things that y'all would argue about. And so opening up that store, just tell us about the differences there. Was he still going to go do custom stuff and drive around and you were going to be the retail shop? And like, how much did it cost to get this part of this started? Because this is like almost a brand new business, it seems like.
1: It was. And I think the hardest part for me was certainly learning how to manage people and do that. Honestly, my dad was included on that, like learning how to manage I'm going to say family relationships within a business is a challenge that I know a lot of business owners have, continue to have. (laughs) And so figuring out everybody's role and where they fit best was certainly challenging. And so we did both, to answer your question, we did both models for some time until the model in Chicago really took hold and far outweighed the revenue that was taking place on the trunk show models. And so that was great. We got great press when we opened. And so we came out with a bang and that was great. I'd say throughout the years, as I've learned how to manage the relationship with my father, one of the things I did, which was really a cool exercise, actually, he would come to the store all the time. And as he's gotten older, I think he never really learned those management skills. He had this the old world management skills of you just yell at somebody if they're not doing exactly what they are, what you're wanting them to do. And that doesn't really translate in today's business world, especially in retail. I would often have employees come back to me be like, yeah, your dad yelled at me with this. And like, they're on the border of quitting after some time. And I would be able to fix the situation and feel like that's my father. It's fine. Like, you know, you don't have to do that. But after a while, we just wear And so... I do remember one time I literally did a whiteboard with my dad and tried to redefine his role. I went through the 40-year career he had and all his accomplishments. And really, at the end of it, I gave him the title of founder of the business. And I said, this is the ideal role for you. I said, your job description now is to take our team members to lunch and to schmooze with people and schmooze clients, come to store openings. We started opening stores, et cetera. And he loved it. And so that's when I felt like as I identified a role and a purpose for him that was fulfilling, rather than trying to fight him on the things he shouldn't be doing, I gave him a real purpose or I tried to do it. And I did it with, like we sat down and we did it together on a whiteboard. and We came up with this role of founder and then things started to get a lot easier. And he realized that as a founder, it was more of a, you're the guy who tells the best stories on the planet of how we started and all the people you've measured and et cetera.
0: And again, you're basically trying to tell him what he should do versus maybe what he shouldn't do as much. And obviously you're going to tell him also what he shouldn't do. But if you kind of guide them of like, hey, these are the positive things you do, then it seems like there's more buy in. So I guess anyone who has a family business and dealing with a similar transition, you think that's the way to do it or any other suggestions on what worked with that?
1: I mean, I think every situation is different because you're dealing with different people and personality types, but I am a big fan of a whiteboard and putting everything on a board where you can see it and visualize it and then figure out solutions. But I am also a fan of figuring out, like, it's easy as family, you're like, oh, that's annoying to me. That bothers me. But what are the good things? Like, we don't put that on a board often. We don't say, what are the things I love that you do? And when you see the pros and cons next to each other on a whiteboard or the things you love, the things you don't love, et cetera, you tend to focus on the things that are really good much more because those visuals are in front of you A job description comes out of that, right, in terms of what you're good at and the things that you're not necessarily your skill sets are. And most of the time, people don't like doing what they're not good at, right? It's like if you're causing frustration and it's not working, you're not good at it. And so why do you continue to do that? And the things that you're good at, that you excel at, where it comes easy to you, you're drawn to that because you feel accomplished and good at it. And that you tend to visualize that, see that fulfillment. And then that's what I was able to do with my father. And I do that technique now with lots of my employees over time. I'm like, let's figure out what you're good at. And if we can get you to what your skill sets are, I know it's going to benefit everyone
0: and here's a life hack for anybody, I'm glad you brought this up, is that those whiteboards, even if you get the big ones, I think it's eight by four feet. Usually, I think if you looked online, it'd be like 250 bucks. You can literally go to Home Depot or Lowe's and it's 20 bucks for that same material, literally the same material. I did this probably about a couple months ago. I cut it in half and I've got a big whiteboard and you just put something around the side so that's awesome as entrepreneurs you always got to figure out hacks you know the cheapest way we got to find value doing it but like i said if you just even youtube how to make your own whiteboard from home depot or Lowe's or whatnot that's my suggestion so i'm glad you brought that up because i started putting ideas and i still have them up there i'll probably keep it up there i haven't erased anything yet to be honest i have different sections of it but it's just getting stuff out of your mind too just in general i'm a visual person and it sounds like you are too helps a ton so especially today with given everything we do is tight, you know it's electronic it's nice to actually use your hand for something else and see it more visually. So, well, so that was, like I said, I don't know how long it took to get him into that role, but do you want to walk us maybe a year or two after the opening, like when you start expanding different locations and anything else we should know along the road here?
1: So actually it was a few years till we started to expand outside of Chicago. I think I grew the business. It was about three or 400,000, I believe, when I took it over. In revenue? In sales. And revenue and then I grew to about seven or eight
0: hundred thousand.
1: Say I think we crossed about a million in two thousand seven or so. So a few years and I, honestly, it took me a long time to learn the ropes, learn the in and outs of the business. I was trying to learn supply chain. I was trying to figure out new vendors and things like that. I think it really started to click for me. What really clicked for me was the managing people part in about 2010. And I've always been in a lot of, and now I look back in retrospect, I've been in a lot of entrepreneurial organizations. And so the first one I joined was through EO, which is Accelerator. I don't know if you guys have talked about a lot of these entrepreneur organizations on your podcast, but it's been great for me. It's like-minded entrepreneurs that get together and talk about different business ideas, issues, and challenges they have in a very non-threatening manner, completely confidential. And so that's been an amazing Growth opportunity for me. And now I've been a member of Vistage, YPO, other entrepreneurial groups throughout the years. But in those early stages, when you're really struggling with everything, I think that was a great foundation for me to build on and have great mentors and people that I could count on to have my back through different situations because it can get lonely running a business. And so if you're surrounding yourself with other entrepreneurs, I think it gets a lot less lonely real quick.
0: So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend $4,900. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810. Dollars for your first year, and for YPO, you're shoveling out seven thousand and fifty dollars for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than thirty bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than thirty bucks a month, compared to those other guys that cost forty nine hundred bucks, eighteen thousand eight hundred and ten dollars. And $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Today's episode is sponsored by Guideline. Think your business is too small to offer a 401k? It's not. Guideline provides easy and affordable 401k plans for small businesses and startups. Whether you're offering an employee retirement plan for the first time, or want to make changes to your current retirement benefits, they design a plan to fit your needs. You can get set up in as little as 10 minutes. Guideline handles the admin, compliance testing, record keeping, and investment management. There are no separate setup costs. No added investment fees. And monthly fees start at only $39 plus $8 for each employee. And they integrate with popular payroll providers. Over 13,000 companies use Guideline to manage their 401ks. With the Guideline 401k, you and your employees can save money while saving for retirement. For a limited time and for eligible employers only, if you go to Guideline.com forward slash millionaire and tell them you came from our podcast you can get a hundred dollar gift card but that's only as long as you do not currently offer a 401k plan for your employees when you start your 401k plan with guideline that's guideline.com forward slash millionaire to get a 401k for your business don't forget that's guideline.com forward slash millionaire and tell them that our podcast sent you So in 2010s, when you started your next location and you talked to other entrepreneurs who guided you on how to do it, or I guess I wanted to make sure I made a connection there.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So I'll give that connection actually, which is I didn't open outside of Chicago for even a few years after that. And I think I wanted to know that I could take my eye off the ball off Chicago and know that it could run well. And so I started to spend my days away from the store more and more and really make sure that things were running smoothly. And this is a good hack, I guess, which was one of the things I would do is, of course, I would get phone calls from my team. It would be a phone call or a text message and say, hey, can I get a phone call? I've got this issue and this thing. And most of the time, if I felt like they could solve it, but they're really looking at me just to validate them or confidence, my response would be, and this was after I made sure I knew the person and trust them, that I trust their judgment. My response then would be like something to the effect of, I'm in a meeting right now. I can certainly get back to you if you can't solve it. But if you think you got it, I trust your judgment. And I would do that over and over and over again, where... I wouldn't get back to them immediately. I would try and give them some time to think. And almost inevitably in every single section, they had to ask themselves this question, which is, do I have to step, ask them to step out of a meeting or get them out? Or do I think I have to handle this? And then they would start to build confidence in themselves to be able to solve those issues. I continued to do little things like that where I made sure that everybody you know was trusting themselves, their judgment to make sure that we were really ready to open another store outside of Chicago.
0: And I think it's perfect. I think I've heard the same thing with like admins. If they want to do the same thing where the boss or the guy who owns the company, it's like, if it's anything underneath like 200 bucks and you need to purchase it, I trust you. You don't have to bother me for a $50 purchase, you know, like giving them these little tears and like you're saying. So by doing that, you felt comfortable enough that, hey, it's time to open a second location and then where'd you do it and how'd it go?
1: It didn't happen until 2013 and then it happened real fast. One of the fastest-growing competitors at the time was one of our fastest-growing competitors, a company called Astron Black. They were a private equity-backed company that was probably doing 25 million in sales. At this point, we were probably two or three million in sales. I ended up seeing that their president on his LinkedIn had an end date, you know, like they have your time, you've been there till present or whatever. I'm like, huh, an end date. I just happened to be seeing his LinkedIn profile. And so I literally did a cold reach out, LinkedIn on an email and said, hey, I heard great things about you, would love to connect. And in reality, I said, I'd never heard anything about it. And I just wanted to get him on the phone and I use his ego to get there. And so I said, heard great things about you, would love to connect, et cetera. We were literally on the phone 10 minutes later, which was amazing. And so I said, what are you looking to do next? And he said, I'm looking for a new presidency job. I'm like, well, I don't have a role for you here, but maybe there's something we could do together. He's like, oh, I'd love to consult. I've heard good things about you. I don't know if he was bullshitting me too or not, but we'll see. And so he said, Love to come to Chicago and consult with your team. I was like, whoa, 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 slow your roll. Let me come to Sh- Cleveland where he was at the time, and I'd like to meet you first because I wanted to see what this guy was all about. And so his name was Christian. We ended up connecting really well, and I thought he was great. He was one of the best salespeople I've ever met in custom clothing or anything from that matter. Great teacher, great mentor, and so I did end up in Chicago and consulted with our team for a while.
0: But I will say, yeah, if you don't mind, is I like the fact that you wanted to go see him in his environment first to see, right? And then you brought him. And I think that's a good thought process because anyone can come to where I am. Like, I want to see what they're like in their element. Was that your thinking?
1: That was my thinking. And also I I wanted to make sure he was the real deal before I brought him in front of my team and sold something that wasn't, right? Because oftentimes you get someone on the phone and like, I'm the next best thing then sliced bread. And then you bring him in and be like, I wish I would have vetted this guy before I brought him in. So I definitely wanted that time to do that. I spent three days with him actually in Cleveland before I brought him to the team. So it was a pretty big investment of time. And once again, like even during these times, I'm reinvesting everything in the business. So every dollar counts. Fast forward, he ended up taking a job with another company that did not work out. And so he called me, but we stayed in touch. I always say with all my relationships, and this is good advice to everyone out there, which is stay in touch. You never know when things change. I can't tell you how many times I've had a situation where I wanted to hire somebody and the timing, and I was super bummed that I didn't wasn't able to do it, or the timing didn't work out, etc. And years later, it worked out. This was a similar situation where he went to work for a bigger company, and then he didn't like it. He called me on a Friday, and prior to that, I was trying to make a deal with him work. I just couldn't get the numbers right. He wanted a six-figure salary. That was more than I was making at the time, even though I'm like doing better at the time. It was more than I was making at the time. And also, you know, there was a lot of other contingencies and et cetera. And so he called me back that weekend and I figured out. I just built a model where he could grow into his compensation as we grew. And at that point, we'd known each other for six months. And he, the trust was for both of our sides that he trusted me, I trusted him. That would get him back to that comp level he needed to get to quickly. It was a leap of faith, I think, on both of our parts because it was a big, it was probably the biggest stretch that could happen to me. And ironically, what ended up happening was he started with me in August of 2013. And that company he worked for he hadn't worked there for six, eight, I don't know, maybe a year at that point. The company he worked for previously declared Chapter 7 a month after he started working with me. And so I was totally financially scrapped. I basically threw every dollar I could at him to bring him into the company. But all of a sudden, he has all these relationships with salespeople around the country because that old company is gone. It's, it was a Chapter 7, not even 11. So there's all these people that are looking for jobs in the market. I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, cash strapped and I just made the biggest bet, but let's do it again. So we put out 15 offers to different salespeople around the country, literally in 48 hours, where I didn't even have time to do the math. But I knew it in my head, I always know my numbers really well. Seven people accepted. And so all of a sudden, we went from one location in Chicago to he was relocating to Houston. So we were in Houston to seven other locations around the country, which was just tiny. It was crazy fast and insane.
0: Okay, so I got two questions here. The first thing is the compensation did you just tie it to revenue? Because I'm sure there's other people who are thinking, pay a guy that I want to come in here, and maybe I can structure it similarly to you. So, what do you do for that?
1: What I did was I gave him a base that he could feel like was acceptable, and then as we hit revenue targets, that compensation would expand very quickly. I did model that out to make sure that it made sense financially, but I will tell you, I was on a very, very fine line here in terms of making sure that things were balanced and had enough cash flow. Actually, interestingly, I never really had any debt in the business and I never took any investors. And so until maybe 2013, 14, I only had a $50,000 line of credit. So I was pulling on that, but I always was towing that line pretty well, but I knew my numbers too. I knew what I could make work and I I couldn't make work. But to answer your question, it was a livable for him, which was a very high number, livable wage. wage. And then also as we hit revenue targets, that would increase as well.
0: And then you're saying the other company filed chapter seven versus chapter 11. Could you explain the differences here? I mean, I have it, but I tried Googling it, but I feel like you know better than me, so.
1: Sure. So, I mean, you're, you're hearing this a lot right now, which is chapter 11 is what Brooks Brothers did. It's so a men's warehouse is, is what a lot of the retailers are doing right now. And essentially, it's a way of restructuring your debt and your lease obligations to be able to work with your vendors to elongate payments or have some debt forgiveness and keep the business running. And that logic would be even for the vendors, it's in their best interest to keep you around versus not because they see nothing or they see something. Chapter seven is a completely different thing. Chapter seven is we are closing our doors and we are done. That's what happened there. And there was a lot of things that went wrong with that deal. Private equity, acquisite, they were trying to sell it. A whole cluster of things that would have led to, which would business case study if we got into that. But what it really led to was an opportunity for us. We ended up picking up seven salespeople and credit to my team in Chicago. I think we were a seven salesperson team, so we literally just doubled. And in about a week and a half, we put together an amazing training program, welcomed all these people into Chicago. I flew them all in. We trained them all on our methodologies and everything. I don't think they would have ever known that we were as small as we were. And, you know, we entertained them. I took them out, et cetera. And also what I was doing behind the scenes, which was very challenging, which I was working with the vendor that all the custom clothing that these guys had, that they wanted to deliver to their clients. I was trying to broker that deal too, to be able to buy the clothing at a better price than what the market was bearing and then be able to deliver it, which would immediately be able to give me a capital infusion. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, perfect. So I was able to pull it off. It was a really long, hard negotiation that might've involved some scotch. But I got it done. And we were able to buy some things at a substantial discount because these are all custom made goods. If they don't sell them to me, they can't sell them to anyone. But they still played hardball, but we got it done. And then that gave me some cash flow cushion to be able to deliver all those garments and then bring all these people onto our team in a happy note because they wanted to make their clients happy and be able to deliver the garments as well and get the ball run. Definitely an interesting time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, so at that point, obviously, you took over those invoices or clothing to try to make money off of it. But to open all these locations, were these all new store locations or did you take over those companies, some of their retail spots, too? Because, again, you really only have the store in Chicago at this point, And it sounds like you're about to open Cleveland when this all happened.
1: Yeah, we were opening Houston, actually. Houston. OK. Christian relocated to Houston Toby. We were opening a store there. In lieu of opening stores, we did like a Regis office type space to have a mock showroom where these guys could see clients. And so we did that in those markets where we opened and it gave me the ability to be able to scale up and scale down the operations. We still use that technique today to be able to open new markets and test, make sure that it's a solid market before we build it and hope they'll come. I want to build a foundation and a base and then hopefully if that gets big enough, it then we open a store. And if it doesn't, we shut it down.
0: Well, that makes perfect sense. So is Chicago your only big retail store or, oh, you said you closed down Los Angeles. That was a big retail store too. Yeah.
1: No, we have retail stores also in Cleveland now, in Houston, and we have kind of a hybrid one in Dallas. And then we're looking to do one in a few different markets right now. And actually, that's an interesting opportunity too, as we're talking about you know, having an opportunity mindset. I'm being really patient on waiting for businesses to unfortunately close and then be able to take over spaces as we're positioning ourselves into next year, looking at great lease deals and be able to put something together. That makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's going to be so many retail opportunities. I love that you're thinking about this of like, okay, because that's what I was wondering. I'm like, dude, how do you go from one store to like 12 stores overnight? Right. But it's like, okay, it makes a lot more sense. If you can rent out a Regis space, you're already going to make money basically from day one, if you're taking over these invoices and being able to sell it. And then if, if you keep getting enough, you're like, okay, maybe I can start getting more salespeople there and maybe make my own retail front instead of just having one custom tailor in a Regis office. Right. I'd love the dynamics and thinking there, what are baby steps you can take before going all in and opening up, maybe it costs a couple million to up a store in a new location in Los Angeles or wherever, but trying these other methods first before going all in.
1: Yeah, if you can test and really make sure that that market, and you know, it gives us more benefits in just being able to also save money on the store, build out. I mean, for instance, What happens if we're six blocks away from the location we should be and we built a location? Well, Once we've operated in a market for some time, we know that by zip codes where we should be moving towards when we actually do open that store. So that data really comes in handy when you're doing this type of testing and models.
0: Right. So it's not even like, for instance, like Jacksonville is very sprawled out. There is like, if you're 10 miles away from a certain place in Jacksonville, right, it makes a huge difference. And you're getting the zip codes of everybody who's going to be your client. And you're like, okay, I'm looking at this. This is where we should be.
1: Yeah. For instance, like, you know, Jacksonville at the back of your hand, but if I'm going into the market cold, I have no idea. And I can talk to people. I can talk to brokers, but they're going to tell you what you want to hear and what spaces they have open.
0: Right. That's exactly the point. Yeah.
1: It's a very different thing to go into a market and be able to test and really understand the market.
0: Okay, so that was 2013. Seems like that was the dynamite year that kind of blew you up.
1: Yeah, so from there, we really started to expand. I mean, actually in retrospect, I should also clarify, out of those seven people we hired, only two really worked out. That was a very painful lesson too. I'm sure people talk about this on your show quickly, but we were also very quick to let go of people that we thought were not who they said they were, doing different numbers that they represented and et cetera. And this was a larger organization. So my president only knew so much about every single person. Some of them were new. They come after he even got there. And so I will share this as a piece of advice. This was a spontaneous thing where like there was a rare opportunity in the marketplace But it's very atypical of me. Typically, I'm very slow to hire and I'm very quick to fire because it takes so much time to invest in the wrong person. You'd rather invest in the right person. And so I'm pretty methodical about the people I typically bring into the team. This is a great opportunity. But case in point, only two out of that seven panned out.
0: No, I agree with you. If you see an opportunity, you got to take advantage because it seemed like no matter what, you made money off the opportunity with the invoices you could fulfill, right? And those people kind of came with it, I would assume. Maybe not 100%, but it's not like you'd go the next day and hire seven people in Chicago, right? It's just like, okay, this is opportunity. Let's try it. And you hope for the best, but then.
1: Absolutely. But when you have those types of opportunities, you got to get tight. And thankfully, we didn't open seven locations we were talking about. We opened some radius offices and we were going to shut down locations very quickly. I knew what I was doing in terms of limiting my risk. I'd say this, when I'm taking a riskier proposition, I'm going to figure out ways to limit my risk.
0: Right. Risk reward. I mean, so if you're doing month-to-month leases with Regis or one year, whatever, that's different than a five-year retail lease, like we're saying. Correct. All right. So unfortunately, like you said, you had to let these people go. So walk us through the last seven years or so. I mean, we've heard what happened, unfortunately, the last six months, but if you can take us along the last six or seven years here.
1: Yeah. So from there, I really just started to expand into different markets and really build an infrastructure and operations for what I poised to be a larger organization. I tried to create mentorship programs within the team to be able to alleviate the things that happen when we hired those seven hires. And so I'm a real big believer that you really don't know something until you teach it. So on our entire team, we really have people that are senior folks teaching the younger folks on how to do best practices. And i really, really worked real hard to be able to build a collaborative culture as we've gotten larger and more people where people share information at a lot of work sales organizations out there. You have a few people succeeding and they never really want to share that information or how they're getting there. From the beginning, I was really pushed to have people share that. And so, you know, we built that infrastructure throughout the last few years. And then also I spent a lot of my time building a leadership team that I can trust that I know is gonna make the decisions. And you know, it's one thing to say hey, are you're gonna make decisions on a $200 allowance when I'm not in the room. It's a different thing to say, would you make a business decision that is, the way to get there is to really challenge people and give them rope, right? You gotta make sure that they have the ability to make decisions and they're gonna get some right, they're gonna get some wrong. I think the key thing is that I've built leaders at the company is when they get something right, I commend them on it. When they get something wrong, I don't destroy them. I really say, okay, how did we get here? Walk me through what happened and how you came to your decision. Because usually there's a logic and a rationale. And then I'll make it pretty painful in terms of taking my time, understanding exactly what happened. So they don't want to be in that room again. They have to be more reflective of saying, how did I make that decision? And if it was off a whim, I don't want to be in that room with Sonny again and have that conversation. Or I at least want to be able to have a logical conclusion of how I came to a decision. And so to me, that was building leaders and people that I could really trust to saying, you guys have my trust and ability to make decisions, but at the end of the day, if you're going to get it wrong, have a rational and a logic to why, because then we're going to sit down and talk about it.
0: Okay. Because you want everyone to think about the decision they make beforehand. If they go ahead and just purchase something the next day, or like just because their emotional mind took over, they thought it might help the business. You're like, wait, did you think about this more than five minutes? Right. So sounds like that's a perspective. You're making sure that it's slow and methodical. Like you said, you usually do with the hiring. It's like, that's the way you do it successfully in business because you keep balancing out the risk and reward. Okay. If I do this, what's the risk? What's the reward? Well, this sounds like that's a perspective you take. So kind of wrapping up your story, do you have any like last words of wisdom or anything else you'd like to leave everybody who's been listening so far?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll give a few. I've thought about this earlier. The tactical ones I would say are, Some of these are natural skill sets to me, but I do try and hone them. I've read lots of books on different areas. And so one of the ones I focus on negotiations, and I really try and focus on keeping our fixed costs as low as possible. It's amazing to me how much money people waste when there's opportunity out there to be able to get a better deal on something, on anything. But the one I'll focus on is real estate. And so I'll share a story, which was we had our first upstairs location at LaSalle in Madison in Chicago and then we opened a much larger location that was down the street. I really didn't have a need for that smaller space anymore, but a lot of our clients were used to it. It It's about three blocks away. What I did was I went back to our landlord, which I had a great relationship. I always make sure I have great relationships with folks. And I said, listen, we're leaving this space. I really have no need for it, but how about we make this a win-win for both of us? I can use this space, do a random sale out of here. And I can use it for storage, et cetera. And so they're like, okay, what'd you have in mind? I think at the time I was paying four or $5,000 a month for that space. And so I just threw out a number that I thought was ridiculous, but I wanted to see if it would stick. And I threw out $1,000 a month. But what I said was, listen, I'm gonna make this work out for both of you. I'll do a 30 day notice. Anytime you guys want me to leave, you can keep shopping the space as much as you want, but I'll leave it in 30 days and I'll keep it for $1,000 even though its market rate was four or 5,000. Austin, you wouldn't believe it. We kept that space for two years. And the value I got out of that was unbelievable. The lesson I take away here was always ask and see what happens rather than being afraid to ask for something. And I always try and think about it from the other side's context too, which was true. I basically said to them, anytime you want, we'll be out in 30 days. They always had that option. Now they didn't exercise it, which worked out to our benefit, but... You gotta ask, you gotta try and you always gotta negotiate hard. And this is something I try and teach my team too, which is one of these reasons to keep your fixed out cost down, is let's just say you're a million dollar business and you're at ten percent margin. Now every dollar that you can save and people don't usually do this math, which is if you save $5,000 in your fixed costs on something that's in, in rent, in a cost of goods sold, or a one-time cost, that is literally the equivalent of doing $50,000 in sales if you're a 10% margin business. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Divide by 10.10. Yeah, I get you. Yeah.
1: But so what I tell my finance and operations team, and everybody at the company knows this, I'm like, we can either do $50,000 in sales, or we can save $5,000 on costs. And so that mindset is drilled into my team now, where they don't waste money. They know that a $5,000 sale, sorry, $5,000 cost savings is also the equivalent of $50,000 in revenue. And sometimes it's a lot easier to get a $5,000 cost savings.
0: Right. Honestly, like I don't think I've thought about it in that perspective at least in a while. Like you're saying if you're netting 100,000 and you can get that extra 5,000, this is like a percentage. It seems like it's going to be way harder to get 50,000 more in sales than to get rid of that $5,000 expense. Maybe you're still ordering paper and you have it stocked up somewhere and you don't need paper anymore, you know, like just little things like that. I think especially people appreciate more. I am all about flexible, like not locking into anything fixed if possible
1: agree especially in today's rapidly changing markets you want to be able to have as much flexibility as you can i always value optionality as much as i can to me it's worth dollars big time it's probably back to my training days too
0: yeah and it proves this point there because you gave those other guys option value right like if they would have took care of like getting somebody in there in 30 days 60 days then it would probably be in financially it might have even been better off for them but because it dragged along it ended up being way financially better for you even if you were only there for 30 days it still helped you but they were probably thinking in their head about best case scenario of like they'd be able to fill that space right away. But because they dropped the ball, you're the one who ended up profiting the most from that 30-day notice in your old lease spot, if you will.
1: Exactly. So I'll give one other hard piece of advice and then I'll give one more soft one, I'd say. So this has been critical throughout my career, which is always be looking for talented people out there and figure out ways to attract that talent. And so this is kind of a crazy story, but back to the original days when we were doing trunk shows around. One of the strange places that I love doing trunk shows, it was in St. Thomas and St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. I don't know how my dad stumbled upon this market like 40 years ago. All the guys in those islands, there's actually a lot of lawyers and people that are professionals in those islands that have nowhere to shop because they either have to go to Boston, Miami, or New York to shop. There's no stores there that sell men's tailored clothing, right? And so my dad stumbled upon this great market. It became this referral market throughout that hill area. So obviously, I didn't mind going to the Virgin Islands for a trunk. show. that was a good one. And so I would go out there twice a year. And one, as always, I became friends with some of my clients. And so one of them was a very entrepreneurial lawyer. So we'd have great dinner conversations and hang out after I saw him for an appointment. We went to this restaurant and there was this bartender there and he was six, eight. I mean, you can't miss this guy. And just, you could tell he had a great presence to him outside of his height, you know, great conversation. That's really well put together and smart. I just know like mental note of him. And I remember ordering drinks from him at the bar and talking to him pretty briefly, but mental notes. So six months later, I went back and my friend was not in town. My, my lawyer friend, and not one to have dinner in my hotel. I go out, I talk to people. And so I went back to that same restaurant where we went the time before. And lo and behold, the same guy is there who's six, eight. And so I walk up to the bar and he goes, Sonny from Chicago, right? I was like, holy crap. And he remembered, he's like, vodka soda? Kind of looks at me like second guessing himself. I'm like, yep. And so he pours me a drink. And so I started talking to this guy. He's got this amazing story. He was a physics major in college, super smart, played semi-pro volleyball, almost made the Olympic team. Great story. Anyway, I'm like, this guy's got work for me. I end up telling him, I want to count him some shirts. I literally took him to the back of the kitchen. I took his measurements on the, an order form, you know, like one of the restaurant order forms. And I'm not going to lie, I had a few drinks at this point. So I'm like, man, I hope these shirts come out right. And I comped him three shirts. And I'm sure I left the bar that night. He thought he'd never hear from me again. But lo and behold, I sent him three shirts. He you know, calls me and says, my God, I've never had anything fit me in my whole life. I'm 6'8". I'm like, you know what? I want you to see my operation in Chicago. I flew him out to Chicago. This is a big risk, right? This is. I just spent a little bit of time with him, but I just had a feeling. Today, he is my number three salesperson. And he's been with me for 10 years. And so you know, had I not been paying attention and had I not been forward and aggressive in terms of trying to pursue him, I would have never known this guy. But there's always opportunities around for great people. You just got to pay attention.
0: Has he opened up your shop in the Virgin Islands or is he located somewhere else now?
1: I don't think there's enough. Maybe there's enough for a front show. There's not enough for a shop out there. We're not yet anyway.
0: So he ended up staying in Chicago then?
1: Oh, he's in Chicago. Yeah, sorry. He's still in Chicago. He's doing great. He's still a good friend of mine and a great guy.
0: Is he from the U.S.?
1: Yes, he is. Yeah, he grew up in the East Coast. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, it's just interesting. Like you're saying, that some guy that that big almost make the volleyball team. I was just think he might be foreign or something like that, you know?
1: Yeah, he's a German Pennsylvanian from that part of the country. But, you know, he was post-college and he was kind of finding himself and bartending in the Virgin Islands and Cape Cod and different areas like that, kind of figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And so I just caught him at the right time.
0: Uh, Yeah. Life's about timing. And also you're saying it's like he didn't need to know how to sell clothing. What really matters is like people's personality, kind of like, especially if they're going to be in sales and their work ethic. Right. And it seems like Obviously it worked out for you, but I think some people get siloed. Like I have to hire somebody within a certain industry. We were talking about like your early on career. Sometimes you want to go in a different industry because it's just like, you need to get that education and that you can find workers from other parts of the country or different industries to come in and help your business. So just keeping your eyes wide open.
1: I've done both. But what I'd say is whenever you hire somebody from the industry, you're hiring their good habits and you're hiring their bad habits too. And it's really hard to break those bad habits. So unless they have good habits coming in, if they're in your industry, if they're new, you get them fresh, right? You can teach them anything. But if they're coming in from your industry, they think they know things and sometimes they're not right. And those bad habits are very hard to change.
0: Great point. So I guess you have one more for us?
1: Yeah. So the last part I was going to say was a little bit on the softer side, which is just to surround yourself with great mentors and people around you. Like literally my friends are mostly entrepreneurs, but if they're not, they're typically pretty successful in whatever they do. And so that's not by coincidence. I think as you get to a later stage in your life as now 46. When I was in my twenties, that wasn't the case. But as I started to want to progress throughout my career, the people I chose to surround myself with, and thankfully, like some of are successful consultants and lawyers and things like that, these also became my resources, free resources in many situations as we were early in the business life of like, the, they're my friends, they're awesome people, but they're all really positive, they're optimistic, they're career oriented, etc. I think The people you surround yourself with end up becoming who you are. I try and surround myself with great people. And now as I've got kids, I've got a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. I want to surround them with great people around them so that it shapes who they become and who they are becoming as adults and as they're growing up. I want to have that same opportunity for them.
0: Yeah, and I always said the, the great way to start doing that, even like it's just listening to podcasts with, you know, people like you, right? And then you start getting that mindset of like, where are those people? And like, for me, I've started doing group calls for some of our members, like every two weeks, just for them to talk to a past guest. And then now they're starting to see each other. And once you start seeing those faces and like these other people who want to open their own business or have that desire, and maybe you're hanging out with the crowd, that uh, it seems like they're probably never going to want that. Well, if you have the opportunity to surround yourself, like you said, with people who are going in that direction, they're naturally, you're going to, kind of progress with them if they're making goals and getting them done you're going to want to do that you know
1: yes for sure i mean i think one of my friends told me early on he's like i want all my friends to be rich because it sucks to be the only ones paying the tab all the time
0: <laughs> makes sense absolutely like I said i think you had a great story here and i thank you for the last three points here If someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview sonny what's the best way for them to reach out
1: yeah my email address is sunny, sonny s-o-n-n-y at balani and I'm on Instagram as well, LinkedIn. I'm big on LinkedIn, obviously.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's where you got your first main hire, right? Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story and sharing these less points here. And it's been a pleasure having you on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I've been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. So why don't you do it too? Join right now. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.